teach at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, yes, written a few books and so on and so forth. Um, I, I want to talk to you um, today throughout the day about this gospel-centered thing, which I know that you are well-trained in as well. Uh, but this morning, what, what I want to do is, is kind of a refresher, what I assume is a refresher for you, but it's always good to kind of be reminded of the um, centrality of the finished work of Christ, right? Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which is an interesting thing to say, 15 chapters, not that he knows he's writing chapters, but 15 chapters into, you know, the letter to say, let me remind you of this thing, um, which is really rather fascinating. So we're going to spend um, our first session this morning sort of with a refresher of what it means to be gospel-centered, what the implications for gospel centrality are. And then this afternoon, I hope it's okay, we're just going to kind of dwell in the uh, goodness of the gospel for a little bit. We're going to be um, primarily focusing on discipleship and community, and we'll have a couple of um, expositions, and we'll just be kind of stewing in, in the goodness of grace, and that's how we'll, we'll spend our um, afternoon. Uh, my own story is, is rather interesting related to this, so um, I was, you know, blessed, like, like many of you, to kind of discover the, I don't know what you call it, it's gone by so many different names, the, the you know, New Reformation, Young Restless Reform, the Gospel-Centered Movement, um, all that sort of thing. Um, but I came to that kind of through the back door. I didn't have anyone, like, hand me a book and say, um, here's what Gospel Centrality is, you really need to, you know, adjust your paradigm according to this, according to this book. And um, you know, I wasn't aware of conferences or anything like that. It, it really was an intervention into, um, in, into my own life. It, it, it snuck up on me. The Lord really um, hijacked me in, in a sweet and, and harsh way. Um, um, I, I grew up in um, a Christian home, grew up going to church, uh, grew up sort of hearing about the rudiments of discipleship. But the way that... I, I learned kind of the Christian life and the way that I began Christian ministry. The summer I graduated high school, 1994, was really a law-based, uh, law-driven approach to um, growing in Christ-likeness or, or growing in, in spiritual maturity. And it kind of went something like this. You, you get in by the gospel, yes. You know, you ask Jesus into your heart or you in some way um, decide that you're going to follow Jesus. And you have that slate wiped clean. You have the forgiveness of sins. But now you're kind of maintaining your status. You maintain your status by your performance or your production in some way. Um, you get yourself in uh, by grace, but you keep yourself in by law. Now, nobody would have said that. Like if you had pressed anybody on that, they would have denied up and down that they you know, ever meant such a thing. But that was really kind of the climate, the spiritual climate um, that I grew up in. And it uh, later reminded me, I didn't know this at the time, but um, it, it occurred to me later, um, sort of, you know, post-gospel-centered uh, conversion, <laughs> that in, in Galatians, where Paul is sort of like upbraiding the Galatian church, and he says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It was as if the churches of my upbringing said, yes, <laughs> you're in by the Spirit, but you're being perfected by the flesh. So that's kind of the... Um, the theological dynamic that I had sort of that, that set the tenor of my, of my sense of okayness with God. 
And I was a very uh, messed up kid, very neurotic, um, very timid. Uh, I was a stutterer from kindergarten all the way actually into, into college, uh, struggled with a speech impediment. So all of that kind of put into this perfect storm of always feeling uh, very insecure. I, I, I had a very um, low sense of assurance. Um, so w- when you put, you know, when you spiritualize that, it really began to compound for me this idea that God, I guess, loves me because the Bible says that he does, and I've been told over and over again that he does, so I'm just going to assume theologically that he loves me, but I don't feel like he does, and even beyond that, he probably doesn't like me. He, he kind of created, you know, he painted himself in a corner with this gospel stuff, and I exploited the loophole, and, and, and now he just has to kind of put up with me. That's kind of how I felt. Um, so then when, <clears throat> when the pursuit of sin kicks in and the, the harboring of, of, of secret sin begins to fester inside of me and becomes a poison and the mess is something that I can't even you know, uh, tame anymore, um, I have no refuge other than to look really religious on the outside. And so I kind of carried this yeah, toxic um, internal life forward year by year with this uh, increasingly polished Christian leader illusion. And did that for quite a while. And, uh, and right even into uh, my marriage. Um, until the day uh, my wife finally had enough with the, the facade, with the sham that I was and said to me, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I don't even know who you are. This is not what I, you're not who I thought you were. And everything began to crash down. And, and that wasn't the only thing, but that was really the primary tipping point for me, which of course sent me um, really spiraling into depression, suicidal ideation, the, the whole deal. So I'm living in the guest bedroom of our home in, in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd been out of um, I was serving our church as a layperson. I wasn't in vocational ministry at the time. And, and that was part of my pain as well. I couldn't quite understand. I, I you know, believe the Lord had called me into ministry, and I, I couldn't figure out why I couldn't, you know, get, um, why there were no open doors to it. And now, of course, I look back and think, I wasn't qualified. And the Lord was, you know, protecting me from the church and the church from me um, in some respects. Uh, I didn't understand that then. But it was just another thing, like I felt like I should be able to do this, and I felt like, like I'm gifted for this, and, and yet it's being withheld from me. And, and all these things began to crumble around. I was trying to, um, at that time, uh, write for publication, mainly fiction. I was trying to be a novelist, and that wasn't panning out. And so everything that I had kind of put my hopes and dreams and sense of security in just had crumbled, and the biggest piece, of course, was my marriage. So I'm, I'm living in the guest bedroom of our home. Every day I'm thinking, um, you know, this could be the last day of my marriage, and, and uh, you know, we have uh, uh, children at the time, you know, little kids, and I'm uh, sleeping across from their bedroom, and I'm hearing their lullaby songs at night, and just thinking it would tear me up not to live with my children, and every night I'm praying in a way that I've never prayed before. If you've ever had your legs knocked out from you, uh, whether it's the result of your own sin, like, like me, it's just the consequence, you're just kind of reaping the rotten fruit of the consequences of your own actions, or it's just some kind of affliction. You, you've undergone a, a great suffering or um, injustice or, or, or something like that. You pray differently, don't you, when you're not going through something like that. 
And there were prayers that, um, I, you know, I understand that the, the, you know, when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays for us in groanings that are too deep for words. Sometimes it's just I'd hover around, uh, you know, one-word prayers, just say, please, please, over and over again. Um, a lot of times just, you know, laying on, on, on the floor and um, just, just begging God to fix it, to do something. I, I, I realized I had zero power, n- zero um, wherewithal, um, that if something was going to change, it had to come from him because there was nothing that I could do. I'd reached the end of myself. And begging him to kind of give me a reason to keep going. Um, yeah, I won't dig into that too deeply, but there was one night in particular, and I'd been doing this for about a year, um, but there was one night, and um, I, don't know, I don't remember the date, but the Lord came down in a, in, in a very real way and whispered into my ear, and it was not an audible voice, but I heard this in, in my heart as if for the first time, not anything I'd never heard before, but as if it was the first time I'd heard it, I love you and I approve of you, which was huge because in that moment, um, I was utterly unapprovable. There was nothing I had or, or, or could do. I, I knew that in myself, um, I, I, I stood utterly disapproved of. And so I knew it wasn't because of, you know, he was approving of me and of, of what I've done or anything like that. I knew what he was saying was because of Christ, I approve of you. And it was like the lights came on. Like someone drew the shade up and, and sun spilled into that room. I, I was utterly changed in that moment. And I believe that I was a Christian before that, but it was a, an awakening to the gospel. And I don't know if I could have even have put those words to it at that time, but it, it, it gave me a joy and a, and a fuel for being okay. And it gave me a fuel and a joy for serving my wife in a way that I never had before. And it took about a, a year for her to be convinced of that. Um, and that's a whole other, um, other story. But, you know, the way she would tell it was, I knew you had changed, but in my mind it was too late. And, um, and then it dawned on her uh, that she didn't want it to be too late. And so the Lord began to stitch us together. And, and then after that moment began to open doors up for ministry. Um, and so I came to this idea of being centered on the gospel through that train wreck of, of, of my own life. Um, so when I was sitting in a friend's living room, and um, he, he had recruited me to teach a, a young adult uh, Bible study, uh, ministry that he was starting in the, in the large church that we were a part of, and I saw on his coffee table uh, a Christianity Today magazine, and the cover story was Young Restless Reform. And I said, what is that all about? And I picked it up, and I started reading the articles, and, I'm, and I saw some names, some, you know, some voices that I had been listening to, and, and some names maybe I recognized, but some that I didn't. And as I'm reading through this thing, and I thought, I think this is describing me. I think I'm a part of this thing. I didn't even know. Like, there, like there's more of us out there. there there's, a, there's a movement. And so I kind of came through the, the back door into, into those things, and um, of course have been blessed by that. But now, about 10, 15 years into the, that movement, I'm, I'm noticing some sluggishness. 
and some distraction from kind of the central principles um, of that. And, and folks who have kind of moved on, it, it became a fad. And uh, uh, I remember a publisher telling me a, a few years ago um, about my book, uh, Gospel Driven Church. Uh, the, that was the original title, and it's very rare. If you publish, you, you realize that a lot of times the publishers, they don't like the titles you come up with, so most of the books end up with a different title than you ever imagined, and sometimes it's like the fifth choice. You're just tired of fighting. It's just whatever, you know, you go back and forth. On that one, I was like, it's called the Gospel-Driven Church, and they said, look, this Gospel-Driven, like, we know this is like your thing, and, and, uh, but it just doesn't sell. It's not the market anymore to, you know, put Gospel in the title of things, and um, and I just said, look, I don't care about that. You know, as long as you're not changing the content, I don't care what the, what the title is. And eventually they decided just to keep that, that title. But it just told me something interesting that this whole idea became kind of a tribal uh, jargon. It just became kind of the, the nomenclature of the, of, of the moment. And maybe we've moved on. D.A. Carson said uh, once that uh, one generation uh, assumes the gospel and then the next generation loses the gospel. Assumption is just the first stage or first step to, to lost. And then it takes the next generation to have to recover that. Well, I believe we were going through kind of a recovery phase, but we've drifted into an assumption phase. So today, if somebody were to ask you, um, you know, as they would, up just out on the street, what does gospel centrality mean? That's exactly what would happen. Uh, if somebody were to say to you, okay, what is this gospel-centered stuff all about? What does it mean to be gospel-driven. What would you say? How would you explain it? If you had a whiteboard and, and, and you were going to just kind of outline what, what gospel centrality is, right? I mean, you would say something like, well, it means to orient all of your life in ministry or all of your life around, around the gospel. Well, yeah, okay, that's what it means to be centered on the gospel. But w- what's the substance of that? What's the meat of that? Um, these are things that, that I know you've been kind of um, studying in over the last uh, couple of years or more. Um, but it's always good to kind of come back around, not assume, yes, to, to do the constant work of recovery. So I want to share with you four broad categories of gospel centrality so that we're well-equipped, we're, we're reminded. Somebody says, what does it mean to, gospel, to be gospel-centered? We can point. These are the four kind of major implications. There's a lot more, but these are the four kind of major implications of what it means to be gospel-centered. Um, and then I want to um, share with you kind of four rhythms to, uh, for being a gospel-centered person or to be a gospel-centered leader. What does it mean to be driven by the gospel personally? So let's start with the four implications. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for instance, to see um, the, the bigness, the, the versatility of the gospel in ways that perhaps we did not hear in Sunday school, right? So Paul says, I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you um, which, which you received, uh, um, he says it's of, of first importance. He says you received this gospel, which is interesting, past tense. We all kind of assume that. There was a moment you were a Christian. I mean, you weren't a Christian, and then you were. You received that message. It could have been a parent shared it with you. It could have been you heard it in a church service, Sunday school teacher, children's church. It could have been you read it in a book. You heard it on television. You picked up a track at a truck stop or whatever it was. You heard the message, you received it by faith. You went from darkness to light, from death to life in that moment. Well, we all kind of understand that, conversion. But then Paul says in those first few verses of, of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, you received it, he says, in which you stand. Present tense, you're standing 
in the gospel. Now, now that's a sense of the gospel that I did not have in, in the churches of my upbringing. We had received it really well. In fact, a lot of us had received it multiple times, <laughs> right? And give enough invitations, nobody's going forward, like, all right, I'll take one for the team today, you know, you need to go for it. Um, certainly every year at camp, you, you receive it again, you know, the, um, sometimes multiple times at camp, we've created a whole separate category, all right, we're getting tired of people saying they're not saying, rededication is what we're going to call it now, and so you, get, you re-receive this thing and we're going to rededicate. We understand that, but this in which you stand thing is really, really interesting. What does it mean <clears throat> to say that the gospel is not just something you received, but it's also the thing in which you stand, present tense. Past tense received, present tense in which you stand. Well, I think theologically there's a connection to the imputed righteousness of Christ, right? So we talk about that slate being cleaned. In, in, in the moment of reception, there's the forgiveness. Your slate is wiped clean. Your heart is, is washed clean. You're forgiven forever. Um, but it, it's not as if God wipes it clean and then says, okay, let's see what you got. No, I mean, we, it would take us a millisecond to tarnish that, that slate. We would just say, look at my bl- you know, blank slate, and suddenly the, your haughtiness would, you know, would, would tarnish it, right? No, what he does is he wipes it clean, and then he inscribes on it the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So to be justified is not just as if I'd never sinned. It's always just as if I'd always obeyed. His perfect obedience is counted to us, credited to us. So that's what it means to, in which you stand. There's not a morning that you get up and God says, impress me. Show me what you got. No, he knows exactly what a screw-up you are. He knew exactly what he was getting into with you. And there's not a night that you put your head down on the pillow that he says, I really thought you were better than that. You wake up into approval and you go to bed at night in approval. No matter how the day has gone, how is that possible? Because the good news is that Christ's righteousness is credited to you. But then Paul says something even more expansive. So you received it, past tense, you're standing in it, present tense, and you're being saved by it, present, future tense. What can he mean by that? Well, I don't think that he means you lose your salvation and that's you lose your justification. I, I believe he's referring to that process of progressive sanctification. The, the work by which we, uh, the Holy Spirit conforms us over time more and more to the image of Jesus himself. Culminating, of course, it won't culminate this side of the veil, but culminating, of course, at the return of Christ or, or, uh, when we are, are glorified, when we stand before his presence blameless in great glory. That's the trajectory. But the process then by which we grow in spiritual maturity, the fruit of the Spirit is, is blossoming in our life. I think that's what Paul's referring to, being saved. Now, what's earth-shattering, in, 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 in some churches, theology-shattering, soteriology-shattering about this message is what Paul is saying is all of that comes by the good news. The gospel converted you. The gospel is your present standing, your righteousness before God, and it's the gospel that empowers your sanctification, not, not the law. So, if the gospel is that big, we ought to consider some major implications for it. We see in that passage that the gospel is bigger than simply the proposition for conversion, don't we? We see that the gospel is power beyond the power of our justification. We see then that the gospel should inform issues of identity and Christian growth. 
and that the gospel in, in, in ministry must be extended beyond the invitation to the lost. This is a major shift uh, for churches in the last 15 to 20 years who've kind of got this when they begin to understand that the Christian needs the gospel as much as the lost person does. Does that, does that hear your ears weird? <laughs> not in the same way, not in the same way, but the Christian needs the gospel as much as the lost person does. So four broad categories, I'll give them to you briefly, and then we'll just kind of take each one step by step um, to explain gospel centrality, implications of gospel centrality. First major category is the Bible, how you understand, preach, teach, study, teach, uh, I think I already said that, the Bible. The second major category uh, is, is idols, idolatry, which is really um, sort of the understanding of sin, um, hamartiology. And then thirdly, growth and sanctification, basically answering the question, how do people change? How do people change? And then the fourth major category is relationship, relationship. So let's just go step by step. Um, the first one, the Bible, gospel centrality, the first major implication is basically how we understand, preach, teach, study the Bible. And what we're talking about generally here is the, the formal category of biblical theology, right? Um, you've probably heard that phrase before. You've probably studied that in, in, uh, um, here in, in your time with Porterbrook. Uh, but if you need a refresher, if you're not familiar with that, Biblical theology, because for me, when I first heard it, I thought, well, shouldn't all theology be biblical? I don't understand, right? It all comes from the Bible. Uh, but the formal category is distinguished from things like systematic theology and historical theology, right? Systematic theology basically um, applies the whole Bible to a given topic. And so if you open up a book of systematic theology, um, it, it, it typically has the same order, but it, it works through major categories or major topics. Usually begins with some kind of doctrine of God, sometimes doctrine of revelation, or even um, um, uh, epistemology, how we know, you know, something like that. It begins to work through kind of the, you know, the revelation of God himself, the Trinity, that sort of thing. Um, then it works through doctrine of, of man and creation, and then it works through um, issues of salvation, ecclesiology, study of the church, um, all kinds of ins and outs, things like that. Then it ends with eschatology, the last things or the end time. And it basically says, what does the whole Bible say about that subject? What does the whole Bible say about that subject? And that's systematic theology. Historical theology, of course, is um, the, uh, the, the major emphases, theological emphases or themes that um, uh, arise from either a historical figure or a historical time period, right? The theology of the Reformers, the theology of the Puritans, the theology of the Patristics, the theology of uh, Augustine or, or Luther or whatever it is, historical theology. Biblical theology is basically this. You begin with the scriptures and say, what are the major themes, emphases of either a given book or the whole book altogether, all 66 books? And, and, and the major kind of work or um, through line of biblical theology is trying to come up with a, a center of the scriptures. What is the major, right? I mean, there's all kinds of themes and, and, and perhaps um, varying degrees of, of importance in the different themes, but what is the theme of the whole Bible? What is the whole Bible saying altogether? What's the corporate voice of all of these voices? If we believe in dual authorship, um, you know, the, the Bible has multiple authors throughout multiple generations, and yet there's also the single author, the divine author, God himself, the Holy Spirit, inspiring this word. So what is he saying through all of these books? And the work of biblical theology would say the central theme of all of the scriptures is Jesus Christ. 
the glory of Jesus. Now, you can express that in a variety of different ways, but basically, all of the scriptures have their climactic summation in, in Jesus and his gospel. That's the storyline. The major storyline of scriptures is the storyline of the good news of Jesus. Now, we see this, of course, um, explicitly throughout the New Testament, and, and this is why um, you know, I think some of us still struggle today with why people do not see this, particularly about the Old Testament, because every time the New Testament speaks of the Old Testament, for them, what was just their Bible, they're um, interpreting things through the lens of Christ. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, every time he opens up that scroll, every time he's quoting um, Scripture, he's in some way saying, that's about me. This is about me. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. You know, the day that the prophets uh, spoke about is, is now here. Um, I who speak to you am he. This is over and over again. He's orienting the world around himself. Jesus himself is saying this. And if you remember then after the resurrection, as he kind of sidles up next to those disciples on, on, on the road to Emmaus, it says, beginning with the law and the prophets, he interpreted everything about himself to them. So this is telling us something um, super important about how we understand the Old Testament and, of course, how we understand all of the scriptures um, as well. Um, every sermon in, in the New Testament, anything we could classify as a sermon, is essentially a Christ-centered exposition of an Old Testament text. The very first Christian sermon, if you can call it that, um, uh, you know, yeah, the first, uh, after the birth of the church, Acts chapter 2, Peter at Pentecost, he's basically even a Christ-centered exposition of Joel, and then he has a few passages from Psalms that he throws in there uh, as well. He's basically preaching Christ from the Old Testament. So, the New Testament understanding of the Old Testament isn't just giving us interpretation of select passages. We believe it's giving us a hermeneutic, actually, how to understand the entire Bible, that all of it would culminate in Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. All of the promises find their yes in him. So if, if we don't see the Bible then through a gospel-centered paradigm, it becomes really kind of a disjointed mix of religious stories and instruction. And it becomes easy to use for moralism or doctrinalizing. Um, Charles Spurgeon told this, this great illustration about two ministers, an older minister and a younger minister speaking, and the younger minister had just preached the sermon, and he went to the older minister for approval, and he asked the, maybe you've heard this story before, I'm sorry if you did, let me butcher it for you. Um, the younger minister says, didn't you like my sermon? And uh, the old minister says, uh, uh, no, it was, it was not a good sermon at all. It was a very poor sermon. The younger minister said, well, didn't you think, like, I was very eloquent, and my, my turns of phrases were so clever, and, you know, I was so artful and, and, and poetic and all these sorts of things. And the older minister says, oh, yeah, yeah, you were very eloquent. It was very well-spoken. It was very poetic, very artful, but still it was a, it was a poor sermon. And the younger minister said, uh, well, didn't you think my metaphors were very apt, you know, and didn't you think my, you know, my, uh, you know, uh, reasoning was very deep, and my illustrations were stirring and compelling. And the older minister said, oh, yes, yeah, so your, your illustrations were very stirring. Your metaphors were perfect, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but still, it was a poor sermon. So the young minister says, well, tell me, why, why was it a poor sermon? The older minister says, because there was not a savor of Christ in it. There wasn't, there wasn't a scent, an aroma of Jesus in your message. And the younger minister says, well, Jesus was not in the text, you're not, you're not to preach Jesus from any, you preach the text as it lies. Um, and you may, like, this is funny, but I had a guy actually in, in my last context um, who, who made this exact same point. He, he wanted to ask about, you know, he wanted to talk about preaching. And I said, my goal is to, is, to, is to preach Christ from every text. And he said, well, 
there's lots of text where Jesus isn't there, so aren't you just like making things up? Well, this is exactly what this young uh, minister said. He said, Jesus wasn't in the text. You're not just to preach Christ always, he said. You're, you're to preach Christ when he's in the text and not to preach him when he's not in the text. And the older minister said, little, little man, don't you know that in every, every village and hamlet in England, there is some road that leads to London? And the young minister said, well, yes. And so the older minister said to him, so your job then is when you find a text to find that road from, the, uh, 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 from your text to the great metropolis of the scriptures, which is Christ. And then he said, I have not yet found a text that did not have a road to Christ. But he said, if, if I do ever find one, I will make one. Because I must get at my savior. The, the, uh, a sermon cannot do any good unless it has a savior of Christ in it. Uh, this is what I say to um, my students at Midwestern. We spend only a couple of weeks on preaching in, in my class. But uh, my residents at uh, Liberty Baptist Church as well, we spend uh, more time on preaching. I say to them, I, I would rather hear you awkwardly preach Christ than not to preach him at all. I'd rather you fumble around, you're hacking with a machete to find that, to find that road, and I'm just thinking, I have no idea where he found this. I no, like, we can work with that, you know? I don't think the road's there, but I would rather you preach Christ poorly than not to preach him at all, because the sermon cannot do any good if it doesn't have the aroma of Christ in it. That's gospel centrality. It says people cannot be changed unless they behold the glory of Jesus. I'm getting my, ahead of myself a little bit here, but the idea is you find the road to Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that you, you, you jump right over. Spurgeon in his lectures to my students talks about um, spiritualizing the text, and there's a good and a bad way to do that. Um, spiritualize, spiritualizing the text, finding the natural way um, to, you know, uh, 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 to get that road, to find that road to Jesus. But then there are uh, poor ways to do that where we jump right into allegory or, or, or we you know, make contortions of, of the text itself. And so, of course, you want to preach in, you know, a text in its context. What would the original hearers have understood? But also, you want to preach it in its spiritual context as well. What do we understand about this text now looking back? We're not those original hearers. So yes, what did they hear? How would they have understood it? What would have been the major implications for them? But also, through the lens of the greater revelation, how do we see that this amplifies, foreshadows, predicts, prophesies, or is fulfilled in Christ? Preach Jesus from every text. Secondly, idolatry. Idolatry. What, what we're looking at here is really, um, we're, we're delving into the supernatural nature of Christianity right? Christianity is not like every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world, even though they are posited as supernatural or, or, or spiritual in some sense, they're basically law-based philosophies. Um, yes, they may say, here's a heaven, or here's enlightenment, nirvana, transcendence, something like that, but here are the steps. Steps of obedience, steps of conformity, steps of religion to get there. Only Christianity says all of that comes after, after the enlightenment occurs. <laughs> all of those steps, those are like the response. You, the religion in Christianity is, uh, is not bad, but it's the response. It's, it's reordered. Every other religion puts the religious steps in front of the enlightenment, the transcendence, the, the, uh, the revelation of some kind. Christianity says, no, 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 you, you receive that enlightenment purely by God unilaterally giving you his grace. And then all the stuff 
after that is, 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 is worship. It's, it's a response to it. So you don't, you don't earn heaven in Christianity. You receive it. It dawns on you in, in, in a given moment. Um, you know, I, I don't know how your conversion occurred. It, it, it might have been a very peaceful, gentle, childlike thing. But supernaturally, spiritually, what was taking place was a Damascus Road hijacking. You might have been six years old in children's church, and it was all very sweet, and you got a lollipop afterwards, but it was a Damascus Road hijacking is what took place, if it was a real conversion. Every conversion is like that. So when we look at idolatry, what we're saying is um, sin, the, the, the behavioral sin on top, has a root in the heart because all sin is essentially disordered worship. It's not just behavioral dysfunction. That's the, the manifestation of it, but underneath it is a reordered or disordered worship, a dysfunctional worship. Every, every behavior problem is a belief problem. And we believe our way into sin. So every sin we commit, even as Christians, basically what we're saying is, God, you don't satisfy me, you don't give me joy, you don't fulfill me, you don't give me validation, strength, peace, comfort. Um, at least in this moment, you don't. This does. So you just hold tight for a second while I engage in this, and it will give me what I think that I need. That's, that's worship. You're orienting your life. You're seeking what only God can give in that thing. Well, what is that? The Bible calls that idolatry. Idolatry. So the root of every sin is an idol. Well, what can get rid of the idolatry? Because we can manage the sin. We can kind of stop doing certain things and start doing other things. Lots of people do that. The Pharisees were fantastic at that. But that didn't get them any closer to heaven, did it? They looked great on the outside. They were great at managing their behavior. But the Lord called them whitewashed tombs. Why? Because inside, their heart was far from Christ. They were festering. They had um, toxic, they had, they had disordered worship embedded inside of them. Well, what can fix that? Only the good news of Jesus can fix that. Only the gospel can fix that. The, the law cannot do that. The law can tell us what to do and what not to do, but it can't get at the heart. The, the closest the law can get to the heart is conviction, but it can't get to, to comfort or, or, or transformation. Only the gospel can do that. Um, I don't know if you've read in, in, in here or um, elsewhere, Thomas Chalmers the Expulsive Power of a New Affection, if you're familiar with that. Um, you can look that up. It's free online, but there's also good little printed editions. It's just a little essay slash uh, sermon. And Thomas Chalmers talks about um, the only thing that can dispossess the heart of an old affection, basically worship, is a new worship, a new affection. That the law doesn't, you know, can't do that. It's not powerful enough to expel that idolatry from us. And the image I get, and, you know, Chalmers would not have been aware of the beauty of this, but in the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark, remember? When uh, Indy goes into, that, into the, uh, you know, the temple to steal the idol, and it's on that little pedestal, and he, and he has that bag of sand, and he's trying to figure out how much does this thing weigh, and he's got to trade the idol for that bag of sand, and he wants to make sure it's the same thing. And of course what happens, it, it, it's not the same, and you know, poison darts are shooting at him, and the big bowling ball comes rolling down. To me, that's like the vivid imagery of like, we think I just trade this idol for another one or for something that's similar but better or, you know, or with the law, trade, you know, um, and, and, and the end result is always disaster. The idol can only be expelled by uh, um, the gospel of Jesus. 
And so for ministry, actually, this becomes really crucial because we're not just looking at the sins of the people around us, right? I mean, that can just be so demoralizing, um, and, and, and it is. But we don't just look at people and go, look at, look at all this sin. We look at it, and we're heartbroken because we see, look at all this non-worship of Jesus. That's what Jesus saw when he looked at the mass of sinners in the world, as messed up as they were, as broken, as gross. He didn't say, these sinners, if they just act right. He knew acting right was important, but he said, no, they, they are like sheep without a shepherd. He, he knew what they needed was, was worship of him, orientation around him. And so we look at it, our communities or even our churches. I think it behooves every pastor to um, uh, essentially exegete their own, their own church. What are the idols of this community? What are the things they are tempted to worship that are not, are not God? And every church and every community has um, essentially kind of the same idols, idols of self and that sort of thing. But every community and church has idols that are particular to them as, as, as well. A lot of places in the South, for instance, um, you know, struggling with, and not just the South, but it's, it's a very dominant thing. Youth sports begin to compete with um, you know, the community of, of, of the church and kind of uh, discipleship, the, the family worship is oriented around sports schedules and tournaments and all those sorts of things. Um, in, in the kind of suburban environments that, that I grew up in, it was very much just affluence and, and, and or the illusion of it. <laughs> um, you know, affluence may have been actually in pretty short supply, but we wanted to look like it, you know, keep up with the Joneses kind of thing, the competition of, of looking like you had it all together, um, you know, the pursuit of stuff. All of that has sinful uh, uh, manifestation, but underneath, it's an idol. It's disordered worship, and only the gospel can fix that. Thirdly, growth and sanctification. Growth and sanctification. This is that by which you are being saved, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, essentially answering the question, how do people change? Now, this is really, really important because every uh, lesson you give, preachers, every sermon you preach, every discipleship encounter you have, um, all of that is implicitly answering the question, this is how people change. You're putting the weight of change on something. Where are you putting the weight of change? How is it that people are transformed? Um, and, and typically, we think the way people are changed is by telling them. <laughs> well, I know how people change. You just, you just tell them. Stop doing that. Start doing this. Right, that's it. That's all, that's all it takes, right? Um, you know, just um, live in a house for a while and see how well that actually works. Uh, we have a word for it. It's called nagging. The, <laughs> the reason we have a special word for it, nagging, is because it doesn't work. If it worked, we would, it would just be telling. I told them to do it, and they did it. That would be it. We created a special word because you have to keep telling them over and over again. And then here's the thing maybe eventually they start, you know, they stop doing the thing you want them to stop doing and they start doing the thing you want them to start doing. But it's not really a win, is it? Because basically they're just adjusting their behavior to get you to shut up. They're tired of hearing it. So we bring this dynamic into our um, understanding of spirituality, um, don't we? The way people change is by being told to change. Now, telling people to change is, is important and it's biblical, but where is the, the, the catalyst? Where is, where is the power? 
From conversion onward, the scriptures tell us that the gospel is the power for Christian life. Now, this is why it's so, it's so important, because the temptation is to deny this belief and to believe somehow that the, that the law is the power for change. When we see, um, yeah, biblically, what is, is so counterintuitive, it's, it's so counterintuitive because we instantly kind of recoil, even if just internally, at the idea, okay, the finished work of Christ, knowing that the work is finished, actually empowers us to get to work. That's why you don't find it anywhere else but Christianity. Only Christianity says yes knowing that the work is done, that you can do nothing to earn this, that it's given freely to you by grace, only knowing that actually gets you to work and and empowers you to obey in ways that glorify God. It makes zero sense logically, which is why this is a supernatural thing, is it not? Well, where do we see this in the scriptures? We see it multiple places, not just 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says it's by the gospel that we are being saved. Um, But Titus chapter 2, for instance, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared. And this is that enlightenment thing because the the word for appeared there in the Greek is is, uh, epiphany. It's like an epiphany. The epiphany of grace occurred, and he said, announcing salvation for all people. And then he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and live upright, godly lives in the present age. Grace trains us. Now, that verse wasn't in the Bible. And we passed around papers and we just said, what is it that trains us? Like, we use that word, train, trains us to repent and live godly lives. Most of us would come up with some kind of law-based answer, being told what to do, given the instructions, et cetera, et cetera. But Paul says it's grace, the free favor of God given through Christ that trains us to renounce unrighteousness. So if we want our people to be godly, if we want them to act right, which is what we want, wouldn't it be fantastic if our church, if everybody just acted right? Yes? Man, I used to think that all the time, especially on Monday mornings, but I just think, man, if everybody would just act right, how much your life would be happier? Things would be so much, they'd go so much more smoothly. I would, I, my job would be easier, but your own life, you just want to like grab someone's hands and say, just stop doing what you're doing. You see how destructive it is. You see the pain that it's causing. Just stop it. Anyone seen the Bob Newhart sketch? Just stop. You should play that for them sometime. There's a little Bob Newhart. I think it's from Mad TV, Bob Newhart as a psychologist, and that's his approach. <laughs> just stop it. <laughs> I want to talk about my childhood. No, 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 no. We don't go there. Just, just stop it. Well, that's what we want to do, and, and we wish that it would work, and it doesn't, and it doesn't, it doesn't work, um, at least in front of in front of the appearance of grace. That's what Paul says in Titus chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? How? God is working in you to will and work according to his good pleasure. And then my favorite uh, passage to go to is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The whole chapter, in fact, is really um, important because Paul is doing the good work of law gospel distinction in that chapter. Um, he's, 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 he's contrasting the glory of the law with the glory of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 3. And it's good because it affirms for us, first of all, um, it, it, it cuts against any kind of tendency to antinomianism that might result from our, under, from our gospel-centered understanding, that we would be um, uh, you know, denigrators of the law. Paul says the law is good. Like, how could it not be good? It, it, it reflects the holiness of God. 
And because it reflects the glory and the holiness of God, the law is, is a good thing. And he talks about the glory of the law, but he says the gospel exceeds the law in glory. Now, how is that? Well, we, you know, intellectually, we would understand because the law announces uh, or reflects the holiness of God, and it, it also demands our holiness, but the gospel actually gives us holiness. That's how the gospel exceeds it. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, to me, a linchpin verse for answering this question, how do people change? This, is, this was a forefront of my mind in preparing um, uh, sermons um, because I'm, I'm deciding as I compose that sermon where I'm putting the weight of transformation. How is it that people change? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that it's by beholding the glory of Christ with an unveiled face that we are transformed from one degree of glory into another into the same likeness, by which I think he means the likeness of Christ. And he says, this comes by the Spirit. It's a capital S spiritual thing. How do people become more like Jesus? Paul says, it's by seeing Jesus. Do we believe in the Holy Spirit or don't we? Do we believe that Christianity is supernatural or don't we? And if we do, we will, we will run headlong into this idea that somehow upholding the glory of Jesus is how people come to love Jesus and become more like Christ. Now, not, it doesn't happen for every single person. That's why it's a Holy Spirit thing. It's something the Holy Spirit, in, in, in his timing and, and, and according to his sovereignty, is, is working in individual people, which is why it's, it, it can be frustrating for the preacher and why we can lapse back into the law because we think I'm upholding the glory of Christ every single week and people, like, they don't care. It's, 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 it's like throwing a you know, ping pong ball against a brick wall. It's just, they're just out, they're just warm bodies and, and nothing's happening. Well, first of all, um, when the gospel is being pre, you know, preached, um, something's always happening. <laughs> something's always happening. And it could be a hardening of, of, of the clay in some people. They're, they're internally revolting against it because it stifles our, our tendency toward the law. It, 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 uh, um, it, it rebukes our self-righteousness. And so it could be a hardening that's taking place. But, you know, um, something's always happening when we preach the gospel. But what happens when you don't see a whole lot of visible, you begin to think, ah, I, need to crack, I need to crack that whip a little bit. I really need to let them have it. I need to give some, you know, just stop it sermons because this gospel doesn't seem to be working. Paul says it's by beholding the glory of Christ that we become more like Christ. Where do you put the weight of transformation? I think this is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, um, uh, you know, some people come with wisdom, some people come with eloquence, right? I'm not a very, you know, dynamic speaker. I'm not going to captivate huge audiences with my well-turned phrases and my stirring illustrations but I have resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul says. You and I should do the same. I, I'm, I'm going to be stubborn. You, you don't have to call it gospel centrality if that doesn't sell anymore. You don't have to call it gospel driven, whatever, if that doesn't sell anymore. But I'm, this, is where I'm sta- this is where I'm camping out. I'm not moving on. I'm being stubborn. I'm resolving to know nothing except the good news of Jesus. That's where I'm going to be. So if that doesn't sell, it doesn't sell. Fourthly, um, relationships. Relationships. And this encompasses so much. In fact, a lot of what we're going to do this afternoon in looking at a couple of passages, you know, um, Ephesians and in 1 John, 
is kind of teasing out some of this relationship stuff, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, this morning on it. But it's basically not just how you um, uh, engage in relationships with others, but how you understand your relationship with God and also your own just sense of felt okayness, as my friend Ray Ortland calls it. Um, your, your own sense of validation, your sense of security. Um, but yes, also those horizontal relationships, how motivated you are to forgive, where you think the weight of transformation is in that uh, relational dynamic, giving people grace, giving people space to be themselves, giving people patience to grow and to change uh, in the same way that you would expect the same for you. People don't tend to change in, 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 in gracious ways, in Christ-like ways, um, in, in kind of a you know, microwaved legal environment when they feel rushed, pushed. So those are four general categories that we work with in, in life and ministry. If somebody were to say to me, what does it mean to be gospel-centered beyond just the answer? It means orienting your whole life around the gospel. I would say it, it has major implications for how you understand the Bible. It has major implications for um, how you understand how people behave, the sin, that there's a root of worship there. It has major implications for how you understand how people change. And it has major implications for your own relationships, both with the Lord and with other people. Uh, now I want to give you four rhythms. What are we doing on time? What time is this supposed to end? What time? What time is this session supposed to end? Oh, it's 10.06. Keep going. Okay. <laughs> I thought, I'm not going to have enough material. I better cram. <laughs> that was a really long song. No, I'm just kidding. It actually wasn't. I thought there was two songs. Okay. Um, I don't want to rush through this, but I guess I just will. Here we go. Uh, yes, sir. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Elevator speech, yeah, which it's the summation. So the, ma the implications of gospel centrality, if I had to explain it to someone on the elevator, I would say, it means that you understand the whole Bible as being a story about Jesus, that the whole thing is about Jesus. It means that the way people change is not by, um, at least the way that the Bible calls change or considers change, uh, is not by the law, but by grace, knowing that the work is finished, is actually trains us. Um, that we understand that, that the behavior problem of sin is actually a belief problem, and the only way to fix that is through the power of the gospel. Um, and then that, that our sense of uh, validation and fulfillment before God um, is, is, is good news and not, and not get-to-work news. That's kind of how I would sum it up. That's assuming we're going to, like, floor five, I guess. If we're going to floor two, I might say something a lot shorter, but... Uh, it's a, it's, it's a longer ride. All right, I'll do this quickly because I, I don't want to uh, mess up your schedule too much. Um, rhythms for being a gospel-centered person because here's the thing. We can all figure out how to be gospel-centered on paper, but to be gospel-centered people is how we adorn what we believe. We, we can tell people, you know, uh, uh, you know, look at the glory of Jesus, believe in the glory of Jesus, but if in our relationships, if in just our own sort of personal walk, uh, we're very, you know... Um, uh, set on a legal climate, we're just going to undercut everything that we're saying, everything that we're teaching. So here's how to be a gospel-centered person. The first rhythm is meditate on your qualifications. Meditate on your qualifications more than your accomplishments. 
more than your accomplishments. So this, of course, is like if you're a pastor or aspiring to be a pastor, that you would look at those qualifications for ministry, for instance, um, 1 Timothy 3, uh, Titus 1, 1 Peter chapter 5. You'd look at those things and say, this is what the scriptures are calling me to be, uh, to be qualified. Um, if you're not a pastor or aspiring to be a pastor, you can look at things, for instance, you know, so what's the measuring stick? You would look at, for instance, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. The reason why we look at these things instead of here are the things to do in order to kind of um, gauge how we're doing, to kind of meditate on how we're doing is these things are qualities of the person. I find it um, really important, crucially important, that the uh, qualifications for ministry, for instance, and there's a lot of overlap. You, you probably noticed if you looked at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, for instance, a lot of overlap between that and the fruit of the Spirit, things like self-control and gentleness and those sorts of things. If you're looking at those things among those qualifications, the only thing that approximates a skill set and the entire thing is able to teach for the elder, the ability to teach. Everything else is not a thing that you do primarily. It's a thing that you are. That's a lot harder to fake. If it just said, the elder, you know, find elders who are dynamic speakers, um, you know, aggressive leaders or, you know, confident leaders or something. Like, you, I mean, you could find some of those people or you could train them really well to get into that place. But when you're starting, you know, to look at things like you're looking for people who are long-tempered, who are not quarrelsome, who are hospitable. You're, you're looking at things that the Holy Spirit develops in us over time as we follow Jesus. These are the marks of spiritual maturity, same with the fruit of the Spirit. You, you can't fake those things. So when I look at those rather than what I've accomplished and what I've achieved, if I look at what I've accomplished and achieved, I can, be, I can begin to feel really good about myself and, and create the illusion I'm doing great when I may not be because it's all external. If I'm looking at the fruit of the Spirit or I'm looking at the biblical qualifications for eldership, I'm looking at those things and I'm thinking, the Holy Spirit's got to be at work in my life if, if, if this is the result. If I'm, if I'm to look like this, I cannot fake this. This is like who I am, not just what I do. And in fact, in Galatians 5, Paul, um, uh, with the fruit of the Spirit, is contrasting. It's, it's, uh, um, the contrast is very stark, not just because he says, Here's, you know, the, he says the works of the flesh are evident, and he begins to list these behavioral sins, right, drunkenness and orgies and all these sorts of things, things that we, sinful things we do. But then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and he doesn't list religious things that we do, he lists things that we are. He's, he's going into the heart. So you meditate on the qualifications, and it pushes you further into the gospel because you realize only the gospel can birth this in me. Anything else I can fake, you know, sort of in, 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 in legal terms. Second rhythm is to fast from being needed. Fast from being needed. Now, some of you um, may need to repent the other way, right? You're, you're very um, disconnected from people and maybe insular in, in your ministries. Um, but for a lot of people in ministry or Christian leadership or, or, or trying to pursue discipleship relationships, there's a rush in feeling like I'm, I'm the dispenser of wisdom or I'm the leader or, or, or you just have this sense of codependency with um, uh, people. You're a helper. You're a natural. I don't know what Enneagram that is, but, you know, the one that's just like, I feel most alive when I'm helping people. You, that's two? Okay. I don't go to that new age stuff, but uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, it was like, like, I feel most alive when I'm helping people. That, like, red flags, you know, uh, uh, should be raised on that. Um, because, if, like, if you're finding your identity in being the giver of, of help, um, you're not finding it in Christ. 
and this happens for a lot of pastors and a lot of ministry leaders as, as well, they have trouble not being needed, and it creates a kind of weird religious codependence with others. You need to understand that to make Christ look big, um, you, you have to acknowledge that he is the Messiah of your church or your ministry sphere, and you are not. That he can be available 24-7. He never sleeps. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. You are not. You are a finite person with a limited capacity, with limited resources. And it's probably good for you to um, uh, reevaluate or, or uh, reacquaint yourself with your own sense of dependence on God by not always being available to everybody 24 7. Uh, now, again, some people need to repent the other way. If you're the kind who um, tends to isolate and, um, you know, and it's not always introverts that do that, but, you know, I'm an introvert. My tendency would have been um, to just hold up in my office and, and study and read all the time. And so, you know, I, I had to make concentrated efforts to, to be out there. But some people, it's like they're, they're such people, persons that their identity is built up in that relationship, and you need to learn to fast from being needed. Um, <clears throat> the third rhythm is uh, commune with Jesus as an actual person. Commune with Jesus as an actual person. And this can be taken two ways. The first is that when you are communing with Christ, right, you're engaging in that divine dialogue of, of Scripture reading and prayer. You hear from God through the Word. You, uh, he hears from you through prayer. And you have that dynamic going. You're engaging in the spiritual disciplines. You're communing with Christ that you do so as if you're a real person and not a ministry bot, that you're not just sort of ticking things off the, off the list, but you're bringing your, uh, your sins to him, you're bringing your anxieties, your cares um, to him, that you spill your guts, as it were, in, in those times. But perhaps more importantly and, and, and more rare, that you commune, with, you commune with Jesus as if he's an actual person, as if he's an actual person. And I think, well, yeah, of course, we all believe he's an actual person. I don't know about you, I struggle with prayer and have struggled with prayer a long time, and I've tried to like figure out why this is, and a lot of it is just the physicality of it is you're speaking to an invisibility. There's no immediate response, right? I mean, the, you know, I hear from God normatively through his word. There's no audible voice. I can't see him as I'm speaking to him. I can't hear him as I'm speaking to him. And so it's like you're just throwing words out into the ether. And then when I do try to picture, okay, Jesus is real, I, you know, I picture, you know, I've, I've got the weird Kenny Loggins imagery, you know, from the paint, you know, the, we used to have this big stained glass window at my last church of, of Jesus carrying a lamb, and I used to call it the Caucasian Jesus window, and it drove people out of their minds. I was like, because it had like a sill, we would put like, you know, if you're going to pick up your packet for children or whatever, it's all, I'd be like, you need to pick it up underneath the, the Caucasian Jesus window, and I had this one guy say, that's so disrespectful. And I was like, to Jesus or Caucasian? I don't know, you know, which one? I'm disrespecting the window, I guess is what he's saying. So like I try to, like I have to picture something else because like we don't know what his face looks like. But the point is he has a face. He has eyes that can be seen, right? I mean, he's, he's ascended, he's in heaven, but he's still incarnate, glorified, right? Transformed in his resurrection but still taking up space, still tangible in some way, right? Uh, uh, um, he could eat breakfast. They could touch him. He's there taking up space. So I, I try to picture his tangibility, which for me, and this is going to be weird, I've only started opening up about this over the last several months, um, and it always gets the same reaction, but um, I picture his arm hair. 
Not that I know exactly what his arm hair looks like, but the reason I picture his arm hair is because it makes it more real, like he has an arm with hair on it. I know, it's weird and probably a little creepy, I don't know. Um, but for me, it's like, he's a, he's a real person. In, in a way that trying to picture a face you know, for him doesn't for me. So it, may, it doesn't have to be the arm hair for you, but um, just remember when you're talking to Jesus, he's a real person. And that has transformed the way that I pray and the way that I think about friendship with Christ as, as well. Ex, uh, Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, I'm thrilled by it. Thus the Lord spoke to Moses face to face like one would a friend. I don't know what that's like. One day we will, according to 1 Corinthians 13, we will see him face to face. We will know as we are known. Not yet, but we will. I, I, I want to pray with that kind of anticipation, with that kind of expectation. I had a little story there, but I won't tell it for time's sake. Um, fourth rhythm and final rhythm, returning to the gospel again and again for your validation. Returning to the gospel for your validation. We set our hopes on some kind of vision of success. This is why we tend to measure ourselves or evaluate ourselves by our accomplishments. And accomplishments are great. Praise God that he does um, sweet things through us, that he's made us so different uh, uh, from each other, but conforms us more and more to his image over time, that he's created us with brains and with strength and with creativity. I praise God for all of those things, but I want to meditate uh, more and more on what he has done for me more than what I have done for him because it, it pales in comparison. Um, the alternative is just like building a Babel Tower, basically. Look what I've created. So in some ways, um, I, I don't know what church context uh, you, you all come from. I know there's different churches represented, but if, if you have like a, a vested interest in your church growing and uh, you know, being quote-unquote successful, I think that's beautiful. That's a, that, that, uh, that's a mandate from God in another way. Um, and, and in his uh, sovereign wisdom, uh, you know, he allows our churches to grow sometimes, and, and, and other times he does not. But I, in, in, in my experience, having a growing church in the ways that we typically count growth, was actually in some ways more dangerous to me spiritually than my church not growing. Um, it was happier <laughs> in, in some regards, um, and in and, and others less stressful than my you know, church not growing. But when my church was not growing, I, I drew, my impulses to draw closer to him were more honed. I, you know, I was more able to kind of lean into him a bit more. When my church was growing, the tendency to think, look at, look at what I've done, just was, was really pronounced. Um, so we have to return again and again to the finished work of Christ for our validation. Here, let, let me pray for you. Um, and you can imagine all the stuff I didn't say was just so awesome as well. Heavenly Father, you are awesome. You are wonderful and great. I thank you for these brothers and sisters who gathered on a, uh, a Saturday to... Uh, to celebrate what you're doing in their lives and in their, in their minds and in their hearts. I thank you for your son, the great gift that he is to us, the most precious gift. Help us to love him more through the power of your spirit. Help us to love your word more and more, to learn to love others in uh, a reflection of the way that you have loved us, sacrificially, freely, affectionately, lavishly. What a great 
um, wonder and, and, and splendor the gospel is. Help us to enjoy it um, more and more. And we know that you will because you've promised to perfect the work that you've begun in us. It's in your son's name that we pray these things.